For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, remembering the life of a Tucson woman who flew missions for the Air Force during World War II. A local woman finds healing along the Arizona Trail. And hear from two founding members from two 60s bands who will be visiting Tucson in the next week, Rod Argent of the Zombies and Mickey Dolans of the Monkees. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Members of the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs, are once again allowed to have their remains buried at Arlington National Cemetery. President Obama signed legislation earlier this year that reversed a military decision that had temporarily kept them out. About 1,200 women flew for the Air Force during World War II, including a Tucsonan. Christopher Conover brings us the story. In 1943, Ruth Helm graduated in the second training class of the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP. Her son Jay says her trip into the air as a pilot during World War II began in 1927 near her home in Grapeland, Texas, when she was about 11 years old. That's when a barnstormer landed and borrowed tools from her father's car dealership to fix his plane. The payment was an airplane ride for Ruth's dad. But her mom said no, so Ruth went. She said, you know, the houses look like dollhouses down below. And it was that moment when she uh, knew that she wanted to uh, be a flyer. After graduating from college, Ruth earned her private pilot's license. And when World War II began, she enrolled in the newly formed Women's Air Force Service Pilots. To become a WASP, the women had to have pilot's licenses and go through the Army Air Corps' flight training the same program as male pilots. The guys recognize, hey, you've been through the same training I have. You know, you wear the same wings. The WASP training was different, though. Jay Helm says unlike the men, the women had to learn to fly multiple aircraft. His mom ferried bombers and pursuit planes, what we now call fighter planes, all over the country. The ability to be able to fly one airframe into an airfield be immediately tasked to fly another airframe uh, of a different model, perhaps. When the war ended, the WASP were disbanded and sent home. But Ruth wasn't ready to hang up her wings. She bought a plane and moved to Tucson. Her and four other WASP basically got together and they purchased uh, property out on the east side of town and opened up a fly-in guest ranch. So from about 1948 to 1958, my mom ran the guest ranch. It was there on the Thunderhead Ranch that Ruth met her husband. The ranch was one of the first fly-in ranches in the country. Technically, the WASP were not Army pilots. They were government employees. In 1977, Senator Barry Goldwater, a retired air transport pilot, changed that and got the WASP VA benefits. And they could be buried in Arlington National Cemetery but an Army memo banned that in 2015. Congresswoman Martha McSally, a former Air Force pilot, sponsored the legislation that reversed that Army action. These women earned the right. When Representative McSally was an A-10 pilot assigned to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, she met Ruth and two other WASP. 
I was at a, a luncheon event, and these spicy women came in for this luncheon uh, and sat down and introduced themselves to me, and they were local women in Tucson who who were lost. And so uh, they were just so excited uh, that we had women, you know, flying fighters and that I was, you know, a part of that, uh, being on the front end of that. And so they just were really wanting to encourage me, and I was so encouraged by them. Over the years, Representative McSally and Ruth became close friends. Ruth hung up her wings in 1958, but her son Jay says she never forgot. My mom loved what she did, and she loved it. She loved the fact that she was able to serve her country doing what she loved to do. The Helm family says Ruth's remains will not be sent to Arlington to be interred with the other wasp. They say Ruth's wishes were to stay close to home. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Even if you identify as a lover of the outdoors, imagine having a goal of completing an 800-mile hike, traversing environments ranging from blazing deserts to cool, forested mountains. That kind of journey is possible in Arizona without leaving the state. Next, Tony Paniagua tells us about the Arizona National Scenic Trail and the positive effect it has had on one Tucson resident's health and well-being. Serena Dufall was attending her last semester at the University of Arizona in 1997 when one day, while doing something that should have been routine, her life changed unexpectedly. I was hit by a car while I was walking across the street. Folks said that I flew about four feet up in the air before coming down on the pavement. And while I didn't break any bones or have any immediate acute injuries, it developed into fibromyalgia. Approximately a year later, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain condition. Dufault says she went from a young, vibrant, active student to someone who was in constant pain. She couldn't sleep well and was overcome by fatigue. Imagine how you feel when you have the flu where you're tired and you're achy and you just don't really feel like doing much of anything. I would feel like that for months at a time. At the age of 23, she had lost her job. She was depressed and sedentary with little energy or enthusiasm. But then she decided to try a self-help therapy involving exercise. With the assistance of her dependable canine companion, she began to venture outside. Me and my dog Zeus, we very, very slowly built up over time, going longer and longer distances. Over the years, I got stronger, and I noticed that the more I was outside, the better I felt. In 2007, 10 years after her accident, she visited the community of Oracle north of Tucson for some outdoor recreation. And I went into a gas station and asked what there was to do around in the area. And they said, the Arizona Trail is right down the street. And so I hiked to the Arizona Trail all day long uh, from this trailhead. And when I was done, I realized there was so much more to do. Hundreds of miles, in fact, from the border with Mexico to the Utah state line, deserts and grasslands, forests and valleys, the Grand Canyon, and more. And I thought, how does anybody do this thing? And I began to do my research on how I could do the trail myself. She found out the trail wasn't completed yet, so she began by volunteering with the Arizona Trail Association, joining a crew that was building many miles of the path south of Tucson. She got her feet wet and her hands. She was hooked and the momentum multiplied. After I started doing the research, I realized that there were things that I could do, such as caching water and food for myself and shuttling to make things easier. And so I planned my hike of the entire trail and 
I hiked the trail in 2008-2009. I actually finished my section hike of the Arizona Trail right here at the spot where it all began on Fibromyalgia Awareness Day, May 12, 2009. That was the first time. She enjoyed it so much that she began a speaking tour around the state. In 2011, when the 800-mile trail was almost completed, she was offered a job with the Arizona Trail Association. The executive director approached me and said, you do such a good job of promoting the trail and telling people about it. We're looking for somebody to work with our gateway communities, a gateway community liaison that would work on, with the towns on the trail to promote the trail to the towns and then the towns to the trail users. And I said, sign me up. He did, and Serena Dufal was now a staff member, spreading the message about opportunities for different users, pedestrians, mountain bikers, and equestrians. In 2014, the trail enticed her again. There's very few people who have done it twice. <laughs> this time she did it as a through-hike, a one-way intensive 10-week adventure to raise awareness and support for the Arizona Trail Association. The scenery, the towns, and the people are amazing, she says. But a through-hike requires a lot of preparation and planning because it is difficult in some places. There's tough terrain and unexpected weather sometimes. How much do you pack and how do you keep your body going? The main thing I was feeling was hungry because about a week, week and a half into the hike, I became permanently starving. So anytime that you want to stop somewhere, the very first thing you do is find the food. Because uh, doing something like the Arizona Trail, you can, if you're backpacking, you can burn 5,000 calories a day. And so it's really hard to keep up. Still, Serena Dufol says she's very grateful for these experiences. Transformative, she says, allowing her to test her body and her mind. It's a dream job, really, it, to be able to travel the state and even get to travel a little bit around the country and tell people what a wonderful opportunity they have in the Arizona Trail. It's a long way from that accident in 1997 that caused her so much pain, depression, and anxiety, an event that in retrospect may have opened a new path for her life. I was already on a trajectory of feeling better and doing better with my fibromyalgia, but I think this was one of the things that really gave me the confidence to go and do pretty much whatever adventure I wanted to do. After I finished this, it was such a feeling of empowerment and the opportunity that I felt like I could do anything. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. This Sunday, the first in a two-part series about the grandeur of the Arizona Trail will air on Arizona Illustrated at 6.30 p.m. on PBS Channel 6. By the way, Serena Dufal is taking on another hiking challenge next month. She hopes to join the small group of women who have completed the Grand Canyon Traverse following the almost 700-mile length of the Grand Canyon. In the next week, the spirit of 1966 will be alive and well in Tucson as two of the major bands of the era, the Zombies and the Monkees, visit to play shows that celebrate their hits, as well as songs from new albums that are each being warmly received. First, the Zombies, an English band that you could say started at the top and then worked its way down. They debuted in 1965 with She's Not There, a single that peaked at number two on the American charts and secured the band a spot on the front line of the British invasion. Their biggest success would come with the release of their third album, Odyssey and Oracle, in 1968, a recording that critics still often mention in the same breath as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But by the time that album came out, the Zombies had already called it quits and gone their separate ways. Keyboardist Rod Argent soon founded his own band and stayed busy in music. 
but it would be more than three decades before he and lead singer Colin Blundstone would reunite and resurrect the Zombies as a full-time group. Bryn Baylor talked with Rod Argent about the group's current state of mind, their new album, and their concert this Saturday at the Rialto Theater. This is our third U.S. tour this year. Colin and I got together completely by accident at the beginning of this century, really, and then played six gigs for fun, and we thought that was it. We started to play more and more, started to actually investigate some of the old Zombies catalogue that we realised we'd never played live the first time round, and then in a very slow way started to build till we actually took over the name of the Zombies again because it felt natural and right for the first time around when I noticed how much was going on YouTube, I thought, oh, God, this is terrible because people are just putting their phones up. It's going to sound awful, you know, and all that sort of thing. But, you know, that wasn't the experience at all. And, in fact, I think it worked beautifully for us because it proved to another generation of people that we could actually cut it on stage to some degree, you know, and that we, that, that we could actually walk on stage unaided. <laughs> When Odyssey and Oracle first came out in the 60s, uh, even though we had Time of the Season, which was a huge hit around the world, it was in the air that we may be breaking up for various reasons. And Chris White and myself, the two writers in the band, um, particularly were very, very keen to get our own ideas about how our songs should sound. Uh, so we wanted to produce an album ourselves, and, and that's what we did. That was the main reason for doing that album. And the album at that time never really did very much. It did enter the top 100, but, you know, it didn't do all that well. It was pretty much down at the bottom end. Um, well, that was because the band had, at that point, broken up. Correct? Well, we had broken up, and we weren't supporting it on tour. That's true, uh, which opened the door to a few fake bands. One of them turned out to be ZZ Top, eventually. <laughs> so that was very funny. It was really about 10 years after that that the album started in a very gradual way to increase its sales. It sells more year in, year out now than it ever did when it first came out. Are you kind of resolving anything with that album, or is this a going in a completely new direction? No. I mean, on this tour, we are doing about half of Odyssey and Oracle, because the half that with five people works great. Uh, this tour is, is more about the whole Zombies legacy and including our new album, Still Got That Hunger. We got a phone call from Billboard last year on, on, in our October tour saying, we just wanted you to know for the first time in 50 years as the Zombies, um, you've charted in the top 100 album sales. And I, I'm more excited about that than anything else, to be quite honest. Do you consider yourself a trailblazer when it comes to keyboards and rock? A trailblazer? I don't, I don't ever think in those terms. Um, I just try to be true to myself, and I always have done, really. And I'm self-taught, but I was always completely in love with rock and roll from the first time I heard an early Elvis in 1956. And that's really what turned me on, as with many people in my generation. But at the same time, I was still listening and saw no difference in listening to the earlier Miles Davis bands of around 58 with Coltrane and Cannibal Ladley and to classical music as well. And that's remained with me all my life. And I think that some of those influences indirectly come through on my playing, but it's a very natural thing. I, I've never tried to incorporate anything. I've, I've always just tried to um, play what 
is needed and what makes me enthusiastic um, on a, in any given situation. Is there a particular song that you've written that your relationship to it has um, changed over the years? There are one or two tracks that I actually love in their own way, like, for instance, on the Odyssey and Oracle album, uh, Hung Up on a Dream, that I think sound fabulous. But lyrically, there are parts of that that just make me... Well, when we first started to do it again, made me uh, feel a bit uneasy. You know, the sort of the more flower power type of lyrics in that song. But, you know, that's a minor thing, really. It just feels of its period because of that to me. But I, I still love the general effect. I, it's a successful song and, and, and I'm proud of that. So sometimes you can't hear them objectively for many years. I think that's true. Sometimes when you make a record, all you can hear for the first few years is what went on in the studio. Uh, you know, you don't hear it objectively. And then sometimes you get quite a surprise when you hear them years later and think, wow, that, you know, that really works. How do audiences respond to you now? I think the UK audiences, they're very enthusiastic, but the general effect is just a bit less outgoing, a bit more reserved than the American audiences. I'm not just saying this because I'm in America, honestly. I, I like playing in America as much as anywhere in the world. I think the audiences are great. They really respond. If they're touched with something, they show their energy back and give it back to you, which is it's very inspiring when you're on stage. You know, when we play Time of the Season, I love it just as much as when we first played it. And, it, and we're lucky because some of our songs have a fair bit of improvisation in them, which means you can approach them slightly differently each night and keep them fresh to yourselves. The band really listens to everything that's going on all the time to each other. I mean, when we're on stage now, for those that hour and a half to two hours, there's as much energy from us and coming back from the audience as there was when we were 18 years old. And, and, and at this stage in our career, that's a huge privilege. So it's great to be able to do that. You were the one Who told me don't look back When I was younger mm. That was Rod Argent, interviewed by Bryn Baylor. The Zombies, featuring founders Argent, Colin Blundstone, and former Kinks bassist Jim Rodford, will take the stage at the Rialto Theater at 8 o'clock Saturday evening. Designed to be an American alternative to the Beatles, the origin story of the Monkees is not the most auspicious in rock history, but probably the most unique. In 1965, more than 400 young men answered an ad in Variety, seeking folk and role musician singers for acting roles in new TV series. Davy Jones, Michael Nesmith, Peter Tork, and Mickey Dolenz were selected to become what has been called the Prefab Four. They soon became close friends, united by their youth, creativity, and similar takes on the burgeoning counterculture that they were a part of. The Monkees TV show ran for two seasons, but lived on for decades in reruns. It was followed by a surprisingly political anti-war movie called Head, made in 1968, and a string of albums where the band wrote and played their own songs, despite rumors to the contrary. The Monkees would continue performing in different combinations over the years, with Mickey Dolenz and Davy Jones remaining the most consistent members. 
until Jones's death from a heart attack in 2012. This year finds Dolans, Torque, and Nesmith continuing the band's legacy with a new album called Good Times and a tour featuring Dolans and Torque that arrives in Tucson next week. This gave me a chance to talk with singer and drummer Mickey Dolans about what being a monkey has meant to him. I started by asking if he remembered his first show with the band. Yes, I do, actually. Um, we hadn't played in front of anybody, uh, really, except, you know, in rehearsals in Los Angeles. And the first concert was in Honolulu, Hawaii, at a huge uh, arena kind of place. It was just <laughs> so frightening um, and loud. And back in those days, you know, we didn't have things called monitors. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. I could not hear my myself play. I couldn't hear myself sing. If I did, I was hearing it bouncing off the back wall like in an echo. It was just bewildering. That's the only word I can think of. Thousands of, of screaming kids. It was <laughs> a very interesting moment. Mike could hear me because I was in back, but I couldn't hear him because the amps were, you know, in front of me. So Mike and I worked out this uh, <laughs> system where he would tap his foot and keep time. And I couldn't even hardly hear my drums. So I, I started setting the snare drum right level with my leg, and I would hit my leg because I could feel that. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and, hit, and when I hit my leg, it would hit the snare, of course, at the same time. I had it set up like that. And that's the only way I could keep time is just hitting myself in the leg and close my eyes. I, and to this day, I sing with my eyes closed mostly, and, and that's still the reason because of, <laughs> because of that. And eventually it got a little bit better. And, of course, later on, you know, you ended up having monitors. But not back in the 60s. It was, it was pretty brutal. Well, you already had some, some showbiz savvy by the time you were in the Monkees. You, you certainly had uh, been around a bit. So did you think that it was going to last? Or did you think, hey, this might be a one-season thing. We better just have fun with it. I was up for three other uh, series that year, uh, all musically oriented. That was in the air. There was one about a folk group, another one about a surfing band like the Beach Boys, another one about a big Christy Minstrels, you know, Mighty Wind, <laughs> you know, act. <clears throat> one of them went to pilot, the, the folk music one, but none of them sold. None of them went on the air. So I was, some monkeys was like the fourth uh, pilot that I was up for that year. Yeah. But I do remember thinking, this is different, this one. I'd like really like to get this, and it had a lot to do with the fact that the producers were not your typical sort of Hollywood television producers of the time. That was usually some guys in it wearing a suit, smoking a cigar, and saying, you know, we we want to make a show that kids will like. <laughs> uh, these guys, Bert Schneider and Bob Rapelson, were not much older than we were. And I, when I went to the audition, I, when I first got there, I thought they were there also to audition. Yeah. <laughs> they were just lounging around in jeans and T-shirts. So I do remember thinking why well, I'd really like to, to get this one. But in answer, uh, further answer to your question, you never know. You do your best. You work hard. You surround yourself with talented people. And you keep your fingers crossed. And then, you know, you get lucky and everything works. And I always kind of liken it to the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. You predated the American Family Project that PBS did with The Loud Family, which is often heralded as being the start of reality television or the, the first origin of that. But in a way, I think it was the monkeys. Because, yeah, the, the plots were made up and the, you know, the setting was all imaginary. 
But what it was really doing was capturing four young men who were at the right age, at the right time in America to be part of a big movement. And you guys reflected so much of what your audience was experiencing. Exactly. And that that had a lot to do with the success of the show. It also had a lot to do with the fact that it nearly, nearly never got on the air because NBC was really frightened of putting on a TV show that was representing the youth of that time. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you remember, well, the only time you saw long-haired kids w- wearing bell-bottoms on television, they were being arrested. <laughs> so <laughs> along came the monkeys and made it okay. Uh, Timothy Leary writes about it in one of his books, The Politics of Ecstasy, how the monkeys brought long hair into the living room and made it kind of okay to be a young guy and have long hair and wear paisley bell-bottoms, but you're not committing crimes against nature. In a funny way, it's a similar thing what Will Smith did to young black artists with A Fresh Prince of Mm Bel-Air. The other thing about the show that was intentional was there was no father figure. There was no my favorite uncle or daddy knows best or anything like that. That's true. You didn't didn't even have a manager, did you? You didn't have anybody like that. You know, like I say, NBC was really scared about it. They didn't. They weren't sure how it would go down. Um, having these four young guys, masters of their own destiny, you know, just <laughs> wandering around. And you know, an interesting side note is, you know, we have this hit album out called Good Times, and it went top twenty, and uh, the vinyl went number one, and we're on tour, you know, to a, a pretty pretty solid audience. And <laughs> if you think back um, to 1966. Now, uh, how old were you at that time, would you say? I was negative three. Negative three, okay. Yes. Well, imagine your parents then or something. (laughs) Yeah. And in 1966, the Stones, the Beatles, the Monkees, Herman's Hermits, top ten, top number one records. Yeah. And all of a sudden, an act comes on the charts that was big in 1916. (laughs) Okay. That's the equivalent of what is happening today with the monkeys. Oh. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. It would, I looked it up. It would be like Al Jolson yeah. came back in 1966 and had a hit album. Or Enrico Caruso. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in good company. Yeah, no kidding. On this tour, you and Peter Tork are playing together. Give us an idea mm-hmm. of a way that you and Peter have learned to communicate over the years in so many different situations. What's an example of how Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork can get a message to each other on stage or, or whatever about how they're feeling and where things are going with the show? Wow, what an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, I, you know the, the best way to put it? Do you have any siblings? I have three older sisters. Okay. Need I say more? <laughs> <laughs> if you have siblings, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I feel with Peter Mike and, of course, uh, the late Davy Jones, I probably spent more time with them over over the years than I did with my original, with, with my siblings. And I have actually three younger sisters. Hmm. But if you are, have any siblings, you know what it's like. Well, tell us a way that you still feel Davy's spirit with you, whether it's on stage when you do a certain song or, or maybe just something in your daily life that will always make you think of him. Well, constantly, because we had so much in common. I remember him from the original uh, auditions. David and I sort of hit it off with similar uh, backgrounds, uh, child stars. And now it's yeah, it's so weird because... In the show we do, we actually have footage of him, and we have synced up a vocal of his to a couple of songs, so the audience is singing along with Davey. And, 
you know, uh, it, it, in some ways, he's just, he hasn't left. He's still there. Some people are saying that this could be the last Monkeys tour. What do you say to that? Well, we've said that before. <laughs> <laughs> Mike isn't going out with us this time. He's, he says he's not going to tour anymore. He's doing one final show with us at um, uh, the Pantages here in Los Angeles. But there's already been talk about later on next year. Who knows? You know, I've learned never to say never, shall we say. That was Mickey Dolenz. He and Peter Tork bring the Monkees experience to the Fox Tucson Theater on Wednesday, September 14th at 7.30 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.